Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Jim Ferris. Jim is a poet, performance artist, and disability studies scholar. His first book of poems, The Hospital Poems, won the Main Street Rag Poetry Book Award. Ferris's other books include the chapbook Facts of Life and Slouching Toward Guantanamo. He holds a doctorate in performance studies and has performed his own work widely. Ferris was the Poet Laureate of Lucas County, Ohio from 2015 to 2019. He holds the Ability Center Endowed Chair in Disability Studies at the University of Toledo, where his research interests focus on disability art, culture, and communication. Jim, thank you so very much for joining us. Happy to be with you, Jeremy. Thanks you for please... Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Could you please start us with a poem? Sure, yeah. Um, what I'd like to... Uh share is, here it is. So one of the projects that I started um, during the COVID lockdown was a, a series of self-portrait poems. I had been thinking about a visual artist that I met at an artist residency 10 or 15 years ago. The project that he was working on during the residency was a series of self-portraits, and one of them it was a really tight kind of a close-up on his face as he was staring at himself in the mirror to make this self-portrait. It stuck with me because it was such an intense uh, uh, painting. And I, I wanted to see if I could write, write a self-portrait poem that had some, some of that intensity. Um, I'm not sure whether intensity is quite what I achieved with the poems, but this is one from that, <clears throat> excuse me, from that group of poems is called Dr. Vocabulary. <laughs> My left foot hangs down and curls in like it has a secret to tell other feet and ankles. Soul flat like a palm and confiding. No secret should be told lightly. I tell you this, the foot is 10 inches long, heel to hallux tip, four inches wide at the widest point next to the joint. Mottled pink and blue and beige blood vessels. No sign of corns except on the bottom. I'll, I'll find a mirror. The heel is round and a little red. The skin under the arch pale, but along the lateral edge, a ridge red like the heel. Tell me now, how do you feel? The red broadens near the big joint, the metatarsophalangeal, but an inch or so under the fourth toe, a circle of tough yellow-gray callus ringed by a darker red. This is where my weight must go, a disc of toughness at the edge of what I used to call my sore leg when, it, when I were shorter. Why do you call it your sore leg, a doctor asked. Sore now? No, wasn't, isn't. That day, my vocabulary changed. Wish I could recall the doctor's name. Dr. Vocabulary. <laughs> Well, it's fascinating. I, you know, because it's it's a self portrait poem, and I know you have others. Like this is part of a series, but I, you, this is self portrait of something that is up until this point treated foreign. The the tell me how do you feel is such a good interjection, and it, what's it's interesting to me that we get nothing about your face or the rest of your physicality. It's it's this focus. Where did where did this one? I mean. Tell me about this project. It's, 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 it's really cool. You know, I found myself thinking about, uh, uh, about those portraits. And um, 
And I just, it was just kind of a challenge um, that I started during the lockdown. Well, let's see if, what I could do uh, along these lines. You know, and um, self-portrait poems can be, I mean, these often start with a kind of a, with some element of physical description about some part of my face or my body. Um, but they almost always jump to other things um, that, I mean, to be honest, other more interesting things. You know, there's a way in which um, it's interesting to think about self-portraits, you know, in the age of photography and video and what, um, what sort of functions they might serve, you know. Um, this year I have been doing... Uh, um, drawing and making self-portraits as well. And I think that um, when I'm ready to publish this book, I will uh, try to publish some of the drawings as well as the, as well as the poems. And there's a real kind of, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not a particularly talented draftsman or anything like that, um, but that's okay because I kind of think, you know, that question about, the function of a portrait in the ages of photography and video and cell phone cameras and the sort of um, ready access to image making that, you know, that your cell phone provides. I mean, we could, we could, and, you know, and I'm sure we've seen people who seem like they're obsessed with taking selfies and, um, you know, so, I guess one question that, that I that I play with in some of these poems is what is it that a self-portrait can do? You know, what does it offer? Um, and, you know, I know that one of the things that I've gotten from the process is, um, you know, it calls attention to certain sort of pieces of what my individual presence to other people in the world might look like, um, you know? And so it's interesting to look at yourself as if from a kind of an outsider perspective. And, um, you know, so that's something that, uh, that the self-portraits offer is a chance to step outside of myself in some ways, you know, and look at some aspect or other. But there's also a way in which we might say that every lyric, at least every lyric poem could be described as a self-portrait of the poet who's writing it because we reveal things about ourselves in our writing all the time, even when our writing is not quote unquote about ourselves, you know? So um, what counts as a self-portrait? I think that can be a fairly loose and inclusive category, you know? Sure. Uh, and, and did you, did you try, did you draw the, the portraits first, then write the poems based on the drawings? Uh, and poems came first. Okay. It was, it was drawing, drawings were something that came uh, sometime after. And that really was triggered, um, <clears throat> excuse me, at the University of Toledo, um, I teach a class on disability art and culture. And um, in that class, I have an assignment. I mean, in every class session, I try to have a, uh, at least one exercise where we um, do engage in some kind of art practice that, excuse me, you know, the class isn't about developing artistic skills. It's really about thinking about 
the role of art in relation to the development of disability culture. And um, I ask my students to, to think as artists, to engage with disability culture as a maker of culture yourself. And as a part of that process, every class session, we do some art activities where the goal is not, you know, making a great drawing, but the goal is to push yourself outside of your ruts, you know, is to change your mind in some small way. And um, I asked the students to bring in exercises. Uh, one student who, who had been an art major brought in an exercise that, that was called blind contour drawing. And so we paired students up with other students uh, and they would do a, a portrait drawing of the other student. And um, there were two rules for this drawing. One is that you're not allowed to pick your pen or your pencil or your marker up from the paper. So it's all one continuous line. And the other rule is you can't look at the paper while you're making the drawing. So if I'm, if I'm making a drawing of you, I'm looking at you while I'm drawing. And so, you know, it's um, like doing this process, you know, I mean, the eyes may not in fact be level because I'm not looking at, the, at, at what I'm drawing. I'm busy looking at you and making the drawing. And so I use that as a kind of a starting point for making these self-portraits. And I think they wind up, so, so at least some of them are a lot of fun and really interesting to look at. And I think that one could say that they say something. Um, and I'm really, you know, quite pleased to not have to say what that something might be. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and that's got to be a good way to right off the bat say, we're going to change some perspectives in here. Exactly. Because you, you had, you were no, because you had once said that, you know, growing up, you were at the hospital a lot. I mean, that's what the first book's about is the hospital mm -hmm. poems. And it was about your time being prodded and going through surgeries and, and dealing with this stuff for years. And you had said that that was a culture hell bent on fixing you, that it, it was a, it was a, a fix it culture is what you had said. Yeah. And, um, you know, that all these invas invasive, painful things that the doctors were hell-bent on inflicting on you, regardless of how effective the treatment were, was, I, I imagine, has to be due to this, well, there's only one way to look at disability, and it's something to be fixed. And how do, how, so how do students respond to that message? How do they respond to, like, the varied perspectives that they're, that they encounter in the class? You know, um, I'm teaching a, a, a section of our intro course this semester, and um, it's really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having a great time, and I think they are too. You know, we get to think about some really interesting and, and complicated things that have to do with the wide variety of ways that we humans move through this complex and not always uh, a supportive world. And um, a lot of the students, you know, these are new perspectives for them. Um, but for many of them, their own experiences of difference and of being different in some ways from their peers um, winds up informing their thinking around the range of human circumstances that we call disability. 
uh, whether they're labeled as disabled or not, um, they, they all have some experience of being different in some way from their peers, whether it's, you know, through religion or race or, you know, class or, you know, all kinds of, you know, uh, the ways that we humans differ, um, that for many of them, they're able to think about their own experiences of difference and then bring those to, to bear on the, uh, the stuff that we're thinking about. Okay, that's cool. And, and, and how, have, how have you experienced difference? I know you, you have clues in your writing. I mean, you, you have the poem, The Coliseum, and in that poem, you talk about how the medical staff would avoid you in rounds, or they would pretend not to see you in the hall as you're walking down the hall. And I'm sure that's got to be stuff that you encounter in, in other avenues. So I was wondering if you might talk about that a bit and how it informs your writing. Well, you know, that poem um, was really specific about the experience of, you know, when, when, when one was first admitted to the, to the hospital. Um, you know, those poems, uh, I spent a, uh, quite a bit of time at a charity hospital uh, when I was young. And um, they would, you know, they would skip you on, on rounds on Mon Monday was rounds day. And they would skip you there because they were going to bring you in for this for this intensive grilling experience that that poem describes, um, you know. But it's interesting to me to to think about the 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 choices that we make as humans about who we notice and engage with in some way or not. I mean, you know, one of the things that I've been doing for a number of years now. I ride my bike a lot. And um, I like to ride, there's a, um, a hike and bike trail uh, very close to my home and I spend a lot of time out there. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is noticing who, um, who acknowledges whom out on the trail and who doesn't, you know? I mean, I'm, uh, I'm not sure you know, where I would say that this comes from, but I, you know, I'm the kind of guy who I say hello to everybody. I wave to people, you know? I mean, and I kind of figure we're neighbors while we're out here on the trail. And, you know, I mean, and I say hello to my neighbors or I wave or something and some of them don't respond. And I kind of figure, okay, that's on you. You know, you can respond or not respond. But one of the things that I noticed is um, just who's more likely to respond and who's not, you know, and I think that this probably says some things about our society. I mean, women are more likely to respond than men not universally, but more likely to. Um, people of color are more likely to respond than people who might be labeled as white. Um, again, not a universal thing, but a, but a tendency that I've kind of tended to notice, you know? And, um, oh, I don't know. I think that there are some people, I noticed somebody yesterday who, you know, I found myself thinking, okay, he had to see me. There are only four people on the whole, you know, eight mile length of the trail right now because it's kind of cold and kind of windy, you know. Um, but he chose not to, like, not to acknowledge. You know, I'm busy looking at my phone or I'm looking at something. There's something else that I'm busy looking at, you know. I mean, and and that may have a number of different sort of triggers. You know, there are certain ways in which. Um, Oh, when you live in a big city and you're traveling, I mean, think about like, you know, walking down the street in midtown Manhattan in the middle of the daytime, you know, well, you can't say hello to everybody out there because there's a million people passing each other, right? You know, and so sure. um, the sort of 
city recognition and acknowledgement of other people's humanity, I mean, it suggests that one needs to employ different strategies around that. Um, here in Toledo, you know, it's, this is not Manhattan. This is not, you know, Toledo is not a big city. It's a city, but it's, it's nothing like, you know, nothing like our kind of major, um, you know, throbbing metropolises or, or anything. Um, but I, I just, I recognize that we make choices about who to engage with and how to engage. And um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've wondered, you know, I've wondered about that. I mean, my, my guess is that um, the, the tendency that I've noticed that women are more likely to respond than men is probably at least in part having to do with sexual stereotyping. You know, that women have been trained to be more socially kind of engaging than men necessarily have felt the need to be. Um, and there are lots of other ways to be thinking about that too, but it's just, it's interesting to notice, you know, who, who says hi or waves back or something and who doesn't. It's, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting to me is that I notice um, when there are parents out with kids, that sometimes, I mean, often the parents are very, you know, open and engaging themselves. Um, but sometimes um, the parents will be kind of studiously not not seeing me, but the kids see me, you know, and so I'll wave to them and they'll wave back, you know, whether whether mom and dad want them to or not. And that's that's kind of fun, you know. I mean, I recognize that some of this, I think, comes from my experience of moving through the world as a person with a disability. Um, there is a way in which, um, you know, I have seen lots of people kind of avoiding engaging with me for whatever reason. Um, and there are ways in which I find, my, you know, I have thought about that as a denial of full personhood. I don't see you because you're not a full person. Um, although there might be other explanations for it that I don't see you because to see you would be to acknowledge the ways that you violate social expectations for bodies in the world. And so it is a courtesy to me to not recognize, to not acknowledge your violation of social norms. Um, but what I have found myself drawn to doing is to push people to acknowledge me and to acknowledge my humanity. And saying hello to people is a way to do that. And again, you know, you may choose not to respond, but then that's on you. You know, that's your violation of social norms, one of which is when somebody says hello, you say hello back, right? Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, that's a fairly long answer to, to your question, but I hope it, I hope it answers some. No, it doesn't. It opens up the door to more because now I'm thinking, well, these kids, I'm thinking about what, what, how much of it is ingrained, like how much as a species we're like, oh, well, that's an evolutionary thing. Like maybe there's like a survival bit involved somehow, somewhere deep. But then, you know, you're describing children waving and the parents are like, oh my God, there's a, is that a koala, you know, in Northeast <laughs> yeah. Ohio, you know, but I think it's sad because that means the kids are eventually going to be like their parent. They're going to be learning this and looking to them for guidance and like, well, maybe we should just turn our heads, put the horse blinders on. You know, I mean, yes and no is how I want to respond. I mean, I'm sure that there are lots of ways in which our parents have informed who we are as adults, you know, 
But there are lots of ways as well in which we may make choices specifically to not be like our parents, you know, um, as well as that we're engaging and responding to a different world than the world that they grew up in, you know? And so I don't know. I mean, I guess I just, I feel like there is always the um, opportunity for people to change and grow and um, whether that's necessarily likely in lots of cases, I don't know, probably not, probably not, or at least maybe not. But there's a real way in which I, you know, I think that as long as we're alive, we have the capacity to learn and grow and change. Um, and so, you know, and, and honestly, that's one of the things that I love about poetry is that it provides us with opportunities to learn and grow and change. You know, not a guarantee again, but each poem is an opportunity to enlarge ourselves in some, in some modest way. And, you know, so, yeah, so I hope that, I hope that we poets and, and lovers of poetry um, recognize and, you know, take advantage of that. Yeah. Have, have you found that people get uncomfortable with the poetry sometimes that you, you show them this world or these experiences and they're like, Oh, that's, terrible they just don't know what to say or or they get they retreat a little bit oh i think so you know i think so i mean um ableism is still a dominant force in you know contemporary society and i suspect that that plays a role in how some people might respond to my poems um which you know many of my poems are uh fairly explicit about uh uh, about disability experience and coming from from a disability experience, and um, I think that that can make some people uncomfortable. And I think, as you suggested, that some people they don't know what to do with that, and so maybe it's easier not to do anything with that. You know, oh look, a chipmunk. You know? <laughs> What's it doing on the ceiling fan? <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> Darn those chipmunks. It's <laughs> weird. That's a weird species. I've never seen that before. <laughs> well, you you talk about even doctors will will behave this way. There is a really there's a really cool interview um that you did with the, the Connotation Press. And the, the interviewer asked about the poem, what your doctor really wants to tell you. And there's the the poem is, is partially about what doctors don't tell their patients and the dynamic between medical staff and the people they're talking to. And there's this implication that, you know, if you had, if you broke your leg, the doctor would be like, well, you broke your leg. <laughs> and, but in, in your case, there are things that you feel that you know that they want to say to you that they're not. And I'm wondering you know, if you could talk about that too, because from, you would think medical professionals would be right out in the open, but not, maybe yeah. not so much. You would think, you know, there was just, um, I just read a story about this in the New York Times last week that um, there was a, a, a study published in a, in, a, in a medical journal within the last couple of months that was a qualitative investigation into how a range of practicing physicians feel about and respond to people with disabilities. And what this study did was to confirm something that disabled people have known for a long time, that for lots of uh, medical practitioners, 
they're really uncomfortable around disabled people and they don't, um, and they may seek to avoid, avoid them, you know, gosh, yeah, we, we, you know, we did have uh, room to add you as a patient to our practice, but what do you know? Our practice is now full. Sorry. Um, and I think that, I mean, and I think that it would be unreasonable to expect um, uh, medical professionals to deviate enormously from the social kind of um, attitudes around disability. So I mentioned a moment ago that our society is still uh, uh, powerfully ableist. Um, and that ableism, which is, I think, mostly unrecognized, uh, I think it's pervasive. And, um, you, you know, and so not surprisingly, it affects it affects even the highly educated doctors that we would hope would would know better, um, but they're people too, and they're a part of the society as well. Yeah, yeah. And you know, when you drink these attitudes in with the water, when you you know inhale them with the air, they seem natural. They seem not just normal but natural, and it takes work, like the work that we do in our disability studies classes to move beyond that, to recognize that, no, this is not natural. This is a set of attitudes that we have been taught and that we've learned and taken on. And that means that we can have different attitudes and different understandings and different interpretations of the reality around us. Yeah. That's why I love the description of that art, con the, the art assignment so much, because it's, it's such a great way to just come at it from a different direction in a way that I don't think anybody would have thought of before. Uh, yeah. and I mean, I really like those little exercises that help us just to, you know, to change our minds, to get, just get out of our ruts of thinking. And um, yeah, in fact, as I'm thinking about this, you know, maybe I should do this in some of my other classes too. <laughs> I, it, it sounds great. I, um, you, I love your attitude because like you have this, you have this poem jump where you start off the first, the, the, the opening hook is awesome. It's, it opens with, look, I don't want to be an asshole here, but let's be honest. <laughs> and you go into, but the, the, the point of the poem is that you just, you can't, you know, pay lip service to everyone. You can't expect to please everyone. All you can do is take up as much space as you're given and, and push and push and ignore the people that are intent on ignoring you. Um, and I'm wondering, is that a, was that a realization that came on slowly? Did it happen all at once? Did you finally one day to say, you know what, screw it. I'm going <laughs> to, here's, here's the finger to the system. Or is it more like something that, that over time you realized that, you know, you had developed strategies around being heard and, and getting your work out there and engaging with people that, and forcing them to confront these things that they didn't want to otherwise confront? You know, I think my answer is sort of yes to both, sort of both and. Um, I realized when I was real young, I started wearing a brace to help me walk when I was, I think I just turned nine. Um, and it was a, you know, big old clunky thing that um, was very, it was, it, it kind of marked my physical difference in more pronounced ways than I had ever experienced before. And I think in part through that process that I 
kind of made some decisions about what mattered and what didn't matter. You know, so for years, um, I mean, I had one shoe that was bolted onto the brace. So changing shoes was not an option. If I'm wearing the brace, I'm wearing that shoe because that's because it's bolted on and that's all there is to it. And um, I think there's a real way in which I made the kind of the decision that shoes don't matter. Shoes are unimportant because I, I can't change them. I can't I can't kind of um, succeed on the, you know, on the uh, criterion of shoes, you know, and so and so screw shoes, the heck with them, you know, I mean, and so I, I, I just, I kind of, uh, around that time was when I, when I stopped worrying about wearing shoes that matched, I don't care, you know, I mean, and it took me years to come up with this, but now whenever somebody says, hey, your shoes don't match or something, it's usually a kid that will say something like that, and I say, well, my feet don't match, you know, so, <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think, I mean, I think that some of those experiences, you know, um, and I think this is a really human kind of a trait, you know, is that we make decisions about what matters and what doesn't, what counts and what doesn't. And, you know, that was one of the things. So for that, that poem, um, you know, it's, it's um, in part a kind of a reminder to myself to not be inhibited by the kinds of concerns about how other people may respond. You know, I mean, in some ways, it's not unrelated to what I was talking about before about um, pushing people to acknowledge, you know, my full humanity, to acknowledge our full humanity. Um, there's a real way in which, um, you know, the only way that you get there is by jumping in the water, is by doing it and recognizing that there is no such thing as being outside of the possibilities of uh creating harm or, you know, uh, in the world. You know, one of the lines in that poem is something like, you know, every time you breathe, you're putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. You know, what are you going to do? Stop breathing? I don't recommend it, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, so you were the you were the, the most recent poet laureate of Lucas County. You're the second. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was wondering if you wouldn't mind discussing your tenure, uh, how you've seen the trajectory of the Poet Laureate program go as someone who was there from the beginning and has, you know, helped usher in the current laureate, which is Johnny McIntyre, Johnny McIntyre. Yeah, you know, um, the Poet Laureate position began probably something like 15 years ago now. Um, one of the Lucas County commissioners thought, gosh, this would be a good thing for us to have. And it, this was before. Um, municipal you know municipalities appointing poets laureate was as common as it has become today um so uh joel lipman was the first poet laureate uh named for lucas county and joel is um you know he's a wonderful poet and a great mentor and um encourager of the poetry scene as johnny is you know and um and so uh yeah i think that you know it was a it was a pleasure to to, to carry on from um, from Joel's work, uh, and has and has been really it's been really just wonderful to see all the great stuff that Johnny has been doing uh, since she took took that role on at the beginning of this year. Um, during my term, you know, we did um, did some work in schools. We did some uh, uh, did a lot of 
workshops and um, readings. And yeah, and so I just think it's such a, I don't know. I mean, I think that I think that the the that the poetry world of today is there's so much going on, and and there are so many different ways to engage with poetry. Like the this podcast is one example, and um, yeah, it's just it's it's very cool. I'm very happy to be a part of that, and uh, I hope that you know some of my work as poet laureate was to encourage and you know kind of rev that up a little bit to keep that maybe not rev it up but to keep it going and uh yeah and and it's i'm glad to see that uh that others are doing that as well i'm glad to see it survived covid well <laughs> definitely very much so <laughs> it, it, it i mean the landscape has gotten more intense i think i, I mean have I still feel relatively new to it. So when I talk to people that are talking about 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it's, it's foreign to me, but it, what was Toledo scene like when the, when the program first came about? Um, you know, Toledo has had, I think, a, a, a strong poetry scene for many years, going back to the days of the, I'm not sure if I'm going to remember the name exactly, but the Toledo Poetry Center that uh, actually Joel Lippman and uh, um, and some others were instrumental in forming going back to the 70s, if I'm remembering rightly, which is long before I got to Toledo. Um, and uh, I think that there's been a really interesting kind of a balance between, you know, sort of poetry in, in kind of the academic world and poetry uh, um, that's more sort of community-based and more, you know, poetry on the streets. Um, and I think that that um, Toledo has long had a tradition of that poetry on the streets, poetry in the, you know, in the community. That's really quite uh, energizing. And um, yeah, and is very strong. And so it's, you know, it's really great to, um, to see that carrying on in a whole host of different ways, including the you know, the readings that Johnny organizes and she's, she's got a lot of energy um, to, you know, for doing that, for doing that work. And I mean, I think of her as a, you know, as, as not just a, a strong poet, but also a really strong um, impresario of poetry. She's a great advocate for the, for the art form and for getting people involved and keeping folks involved. Yeah. When you, we were talking before, this episode started you're talking about how uh your work has changed over time and how you've evolved as a person and i i was wondering if we couldn't just reinvent that conversation it was such an interesting conversation you know you just you discussed how um you know part part of your part of your change and your growth like looking back and seeing which which is a phenomenon i think most any writer that matures experiences which is they look back and they're like well I would change so much, but th that's a time capsule now. And, but you also described how your energy has changed and how like your interests have changed. No, um, I think that uh, this is one of the things that I've, that, that I have come to recognize clearly as I've, as I've matured um, that, you know, there's a period in our lives where we don't see um, or maybe I should just speak for myself, where I did not recognize the ways that, uh, particularly that my body was changing, you know, that I thought it was fairly sort of constant for 
oh, I don't know, from late 20s until early 40s or something like that. But I recognize now that, in fact, my body was changing all the time as, you know, as, I mean, one of the insights of disability studies is it has to do with the ways that bodies and minds are not separate things. And there are scholars that talk about the body mind and make it, you know, put it together as one word because these are inseparable things, um, which is, I think, a really telling insight. I mean, I'm just, I'm so happy to have that idea to work with, to realize that some of this kind of dualism is, it's a useful, it's a useful fiction rather than a real representation of how we humans actually live. Um, and so recognizing that we're always changing, you know, well, um, expecting our art, you know, and the things that we make to stay consistent. Well, that's a, that's a, I think a mistaken thing to anticipate or to look for. And so, um, yeah, so my work has, has been changing, you know, all along. And I do think that maybe this is, Maybe this is a fiction that I need in order to sort of stay active and keep working. But I think that my work today is is better than what I was writing 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. You know, I think I'm doing my best work right now. And that's quite encouraging to me, you know. Um, as we, we talked about before, you know, I mean, I'm glad not to be a theoretical physicist because at least the story goes that, you know, for theoretical physicists, they do their best thinking by the time they're about 30 or so. And by the time they may get the Nobel Prize when they're 55 or 60 years old or something, it's for work that they did 30 years ago because their best thinking was back then. And I think that, um, at least for me as a poet, uh, and and beyond just, just as a poet, but definitely there, I think I'm doing my best work right now. I mean, I feel like I know what I'm doing in ways that I didn't years ago. And... Um, and that's a good thing, you know, that feels good to me. In, in what ways? Well, I mean, I feel like I have a better command of language now. Um, I feel like I have a set of tools that I can use when I'm writing that um, I don't have to try to figure out how to do some things. I have some tools that I know how to use. Um, you know, uh, image tools, you know, uh, um, tools for language. Um, when, for example, um, at the, you know, at the uh, Youngstown Literary Festival that we were just at recently, um, in workshops, you know, uh, where the presenter will say, well, here's a prompt, let's, you know, take a few minutes and write something. Um, I don't spend a lot of time spinning my wheels. Because I have, you know, I have, I have some tools that are established. And it's not that I can't add more tools to my toolbox. I surely can. I hope I am doing that, you know. Um, and it's also, I hope that I'm not just going back to the same old sorts of things that I've already done and said before. Um, but I feel like, I feel like I have a little more, maybe a piece of it is that I'm more confident in my skills today which encourages me to to use them to reach them to stretch them yeah no i feel all that because i i have i've developed strategies for workshop settings where 
I'm not staring blankly at my page where I, I can just start writing. They're not even craft techniques so much as they are like mental tricks to immediately vault myself over the gate and just start. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And to get over that kind of self-consciousness, you know, I mean, that's a piece of what the drawing practice has been about. You know, if I'm not looking at the page, then I'm not judging that I'm busy paying attention to where I want my attention to be, which is, you know, on the person or whatever it is that I'm seeking to draw. Right. And so, yeah. And so it's, it's a really valuable tool for sidestepping the self-consciousness that I think can be such a, such a damaging thing, you know, something that gets in the way of expression of, of, of real full, honest, accurate engagement. Yeah. And, and it also externalizes the excuse. Like if you look down at something and you're like, well, this is a terrible piece of writing. It's a workshop, you know, it's off the cuff. <laughs> it doesn't have to be perfect. It's no, nobody's expecting it to be for sure. It's just right. meant to be a way to get you thinking and not looking at the paper. You're like, well, I could have drawn better if I wasn't looking at the paper. So it takes all that stuff, the self-doubt, and it helps clear the table up. I won't say clears the table for everyone, but I think it does some heavy lifting for a lot of people. There is the chance for that, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's how it has worked for me. It's helped me to kind of, um, and one of the things that I have found is that uh, the drawings that I do, um, as I keep doing them, they get better. I like them more, you know, and, uh, and that's a good thing too. I really do think that there's something, I mean, one of the things that I get from drawing is this kind of um, a, con a connection between my eye and my hand, you know, I mean, and I'm trying when I'm drawing, I'm trying to draw what I'm seeing, you know, what I'm noticing as I'm looking, you know, whether it's at my face in the mirror or at the coffee cup on the table or whatever, you know, to do but trying to do that and putting aside that kind of issue of judgment for the moment is I think just a really enlivening um, uh, practice for me. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and you, you have a doctorate in performance studies and I'm curious what, what nature of performance did you, did you study and how has your, how did your education and research impact your writing? You know, what got me into performance studies um, is that I, I took a class while I was working on my master's degree in TV and film. I took a class with the performance of literature folks. That's what they were calling that, their concentration back in those days, which focused on the, the performance of non-dramatic texts. So texts that may not have been written for performance, unlike, say, a play script, um, could be really productively uh, brought into a performance arena. And one of the things that, I've, that I found myself thinking was that that kind of attention to perform a poem or a short story effectively, you have to really pay attention word by word, you know, as well as to, you know, the larger sort of structures within it. And I thought that would be a good way for me to continue my development as a writer. Um, and so I entered into... Uh, into performance studies that way. Um, and, you know, uh, the, uh, our studies there uh, included the performance of lots of different kinds of non-dramatic texts, um, but also 
you know, there were work on, on uh, texts that were designed specifically for performance, like play texts, like um, dramatic monologues. Um, but uh, as well, lots of uh, my colleagues and I were involved in developing um, usually relatively narrative, but not necessarily narrative performance art. Um, and the field of performance studies has, as it's continued to develop, um, encompasses lots of different, lots of different um, kinds of performance. Um, but, you know, my, some of the things that I learned in, you know, in my studies and uh, in performance studies have informed how I think about lots of things, including how I think about disability studies. I mean, I think about um, disability as a performance event that happens between people in a particular time and place. Um, yeah, so, so that, that idea of what performance is, what it means has really informed my work in quite profound ways. Very cool. And, and when you sit down, when you sit down to write a performance piece, what techniques are you using? What are you thinking about as you're constructing it? How is it different than a poem that's just meant to be read on the page? You know, at least initially, I don't really make a lot of differentiation there. Um, if I'm, if I have writing a performance piece in mind, the kind of size and shape of it is is likely different than a poem. I mean, poems often start, for me at least, with, oh, I don't know, maybe a, a phrase or a line will float into my mind, um, and I'll just write it down, because when the muse speaks, that my job is to write it down. Um, generally, I have something larger in mind when I'm working on a performance piece, and uh, but it's really crucial for me there to find a starting point. You know, to find, I mean, it's, it's it, it, you know, it's, it's kind of like Archimedes and the lever. I, I first, I need to find a place to stand and then I can start thinking about moving the world, you know? Um, so once I have a sort of a starting point, then I like to just see what evolves, see what comes up and then to start thinking about what kind of a shape that might take. Um, but I think, I don't know, often I think my best poems are kind of jumpy. You know, they're not, they're not necessarily particularly linear. They do a lot of jumping around. And um, I think that's true, at least for me, with, with performance pieces as well, is that um, when they're kind of jumpy, they, uh, I mean, they keep me involved. They, and I hope that they keep the audience involved as well. And kind of, you know, because I, I hope that poems and performances alike um, ask the audience members to bring themselves to it as well, you know, to engage with it. I mean, performance is not something that I do by myself. It's something that we do together. It's something that we create together. There is, you know, we could say that there is no performance without audience. I mean, it might be, and in rehearsal, sometimes it is where I am my audience, you know, or I am audience. But, you know, if we're going to think about performance, you know, there needs to be uh, audience as well as performer. And then we recognize that this is something that we are making together. Um, yeah. Yeah. I had a theater director that used to say that he would say, you know, this, I know this is tech rehearsal. I know there's no one out there, 
but we're listening to ourselves and we're actively trying to decide if this is the performance we want to bring the audience. Like, is this actually, you know, so we're going to be listening to ourselves all night and I want you actively listening, is what he would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, if you're in, in a play with other people, you know, it's really important to listen to each other, you know. I mean, that's just that's just crucial. And I think that recognizing that is a real turning point for a performer, whether, you know, they're acting in, you know, stage plays or, um, you know, performance, you know, like developing performance art or some kind of, uh, you know, narrative. Yeah, that I think that that's a really crucial thing. Yeah, and it's it's core at the idea. That's that's the core. Those are the core concepts underlying the selfish actor. You know, like the the person who will deliver the lines the same way every time is not really listening to the other actors on stage, and so sometimes it'll sound disjointed. And then it's either that actor stands out, or the other actors have to follow their performance. And so th- this it really becomes about them, which if you're not a main character and you're not like playing Hamlet or something, that's not a good thing usually. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, I, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it reminds me of, I, I heard this wonderful story about um, somebody who was in a streetcar named desire on Broadway many years ago. Um, you know, he, he, you know, he played the ambulance attendant who, who comes to take Blanche away at the very end of the play. You know, he's got, he's been one scene, he shows up and then he's gone. And um this guy was asked what the play is about. And he said, oh, it's about this, audio, this ambulance attendant. And, you know, I mean, and there's a way in which on the one hand, you know, recognizing that what you're doing, treating it like it's important, that's, that's a great value. But recognizing your place in the larger scheme, there is something to that too, you know? <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> so... Um, what you, you talked about the self-portrait series, what is next for you creatively? What, what other projects are you working on? Um, so uh, I just, just a, um, a few years ago, I discovered one of my cousins was doing some genealogical research and, uh, we discovered that our grandparents were black and started passing for white, maybe a little bit less than a hundred years ago. Um, so for me, who is phenotypically very white, who is culturally, uh, you know, I was raised to think of myself and my family as white and never to question any of that. Um, it's been something really interesting to dig into and to, uh, um, and which shows up in my writing to a great extent, including some of these self-portrait poems. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about race and identity and, and cultural identity, uh, in a sort of a broad as well as narrow sense. So that's something that I have been uh, have been working around. Um, I also, so my father passed away about a year, about a year and a half ago now. Um, oh and, um, you know, he was 98 and a half years old. He was ready to, you know, make that transition. Um, and um, I was... You know, I was thinking in the last couple of years of his life about poems around death and dying, you know, and one of the most famous ones uh, in English is um, Dylan Thomas's, you know, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, which when I looked at the poem closely, I thought, oh, my God, this is terrible advice. At least it's terrible advice for somebody like my father, you know, who is well into his 90s and is, you know, ready to meet his maker. Um, 
And so, you know, so I started working on a kind of a response to the Dylan Thomas poem, but it wasn't until my father passed away that I really understood how to bring it together and to, and to finish it. And so, yeah, so that's something that, uh, uh, that, um, yeah, that, that I have been working on and am, and am relatively pleased with. It's not, I hope that the poem evokes the villanelle. It's not, a, it's not strictly a villanelle as the Dylan Thomas poem is, um, but I hope that it evokes the villanelle. And uh, yeah. I would be very interested in seeing that poem when it's done. Yeah, yeah, it's done. I'd be, I'd be happy to share it with you if you like. Thank you. I would appreciate that. Okay. Um, okay. So could you please read us a poem to wrap up? Yeah. This is called Requiem Responsorial. My father asks, where is the night? On second thought, go ahead, go gentle into that good night. The time for rage eventually must pass. With time, the fire turns friendly. Better to accept our gifts, to burn our fear and blight. My father asks, where is the night? Coals glow. Soon enough, lightning stops flashing. Whether we revere nature and the night or burn against the dwindling of daylight, all grow ashy. Sorry, I've just lost my place for a second there. Or burn against the dwindling of daylight, all grow ashy. Systems fail, light dims, no matter the tenor or how we fight. My father asks, where is the night? The young may burn to rule, to win. With time, green fruit may ripen. With luck, will mellow. Rage now is misplaced. Store it with the lost glasses and mislaid keys. Where is the night we each may one day ask? The secret is, there is no secret. Sparks are past. This day is near its last. No one can live forever in the past. Some think the fire burns out too fast, but fast or slow, gentle, you know, the fire will out as it must at last. My father asks, where is the night? Cold and burning through us wherever we alight. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, yay, sneak peek. <laughs> Early draft. I got my wish in like seconds. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and it's a, it's an ador- it's a beautiful piece. I really like <laughs> mm. That's that's cool. Um thank you so much for sharing that poem. I I really appreciate it. Uh Okay, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Jim, thank you so much for this conversation and for joining me today. Hey, Jeremy, it's been a pleasure.